Welcome to this week's podcast from Free Chapel in Orange County. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, check out our website at freechapel.org. Open your Bible. If you've got your Bible, you've got an iPad or an iPhone or, a, or a, you're an old school Christian and you're rocking just the solid Word of God on pages. Uh, or maybe you stole a Gideon Bible from a hotel once. And uh, you figured you can justify it because it's okay to steal a word. Then uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'll say to that. But um, we're going to turn to Second Chronicles. So I just want to preach, um, preach this uh, message for you. And uh, I want to just share from Second Chronicles seven, and from verse twelve. It'll come up on the screen if if you don't have a Bible or can't look on with someone. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I've heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. Verse 14, it says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then... I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. I want to read verse 14 again. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is a verse that we turn to when things often get crazy in in our situations, um, especially when a nation is going through um, the brokenness and the heartache that has gone through this week. Often we, we, you know, we Instagram a verse like this, or we tweet it, or we post it, and, and because it encourages us in a sense of it's a reminder that God is in control and that God has the ability to turn things around. But what can happen is when we look at a verse like this, often we focus so much on the result that we want, and the the result in this verse is a healed land. And we focus so much on God healing the land that often when we look at this verse, we overlook the instructions that the verse is giving us in order to bring us to a place of seeing a land healed. And what we do is we get focused on what we want God to do that we miss what God is actually telling us to do in order to bring about and release His power to change and heal our land. What he says is in this verse is he begins by saying, and it jumped out at me, I've seen this verse and probably if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've seen this verse before and you're familiar with it. And at a glance, my memory of this verse, at a glance before, so looking at it closer, was I sort of summarise this verse in my own mind, thinking if we pray, then God will heal the land. And that is correct. And that's true. If you know our church, you know that we're big on prayer. Prayer is important. We, I believe prayer does nothing, God does, does nothing except through prayer. And that's why we have so many different prayer meetings at our church. But if you look at this verse and you look at it closely, what he's telling us to do, what he's telling us to do to bring about a healing in the land is beyond and it's another level. It's not just to pray. In fact, what God is saying is, and I love it, he begins by talking about healing the land. And what he does is he puts the focus before he talks about the land being healed. He puts the focus of the land being healed onto His people. 
When we as a church go through and, and, and as a nation rather, go through situations like what we've seen happen this week, it can be so quick for us as Christians to look at the broken land and say, well, they need to do this. They shouldn't be doing that. They shouldn't be acting like that. They shouldn't be operating like that. And whether that's true or not, whether what they're doing is right or wrong, the fact is in this verse, God is saying to us, it's not about the broken land. I'm actually saying something now to my people. And what God says is in order for me to heal a broken land, I'm not asking the broken land to do anything. I'm actually asking the church to step up and do something now. God says the future of the broken land is I'm putting the future of the broken land in the hands of my people. And when I realised that and I looked at that verse, it it changed how I looked at it. I realised, wow, God is giving us as the church the responsibility to usher down the healing power of God onto our land. That's a powerful mandate when you understand that that is what you're called to do as a Christian. Isn't that what Jesus says in Matthew when He gives the disciples instructions on how to pray? He says, you need to pray. And when you pray, say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're doing when we pray. So it is our responsibility to see the land healed. It's our responsibility as the church to call down God's will upon the land. And so he gives us these instructions. And it's funny because the first thing that he says is, and it hit me, it's interesting. That's not the first thing he tells us to do. Prayer is not the first thing God tells us to do in this verse. What he first starts by saying, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Before he tells us to pray, before He tells us to declare, before He tells us to speak out what we want God to do, before He says anything else that He tells us to do, before we're told to seek His face, before we're told to turn from our wicked ways, the first thing God says is, I want the church, I want my people to humble themselves before God. Humility is not something we like to talk about a lot in church. We know it. We know we're meant to be humble. We all have different ideas of what humility looks like. But often we don't like to preach about humility in church. Have you ever prayed to God and said, Lord, would you humble me? You know, it sounds like a nice spiritual prayer to pray, you know, get some keys in the background and get before God and say, Lord, humble me. And then He does. And then you come back and you say, Lord, please don't do that again. Have you ever been humbled? Because this is how it works. We either humble ourselves or God will humble us. I was humbled this week um, as a communicator and and a preacher. You know, I mean, we we love to think that we know what we're doing when we're up here. And I I went to summer extreme this week and I went into the kid pack area and there were Probably there must have been 80, I don't know how old they were, that high. What is that, five? 85 year olds waiting for me to preach. 
I walked in there thinking, I know what I'm doing. I get, you know, I preach all the time. I mean, this is, you know, I'm ready to preach. Humbled very quickly. You're a lot easier to preach to than they are. What makes it easier is if you don't like what I'm saying, at least you smile back. Jesus, help this guy. Oh, my Lord. Help him, help him. At least those kids will tell you. Some of you that are real edgy, you'll tell me, but at least you'll tell me after I've preached. You know, and you word it sort of, you know, you have that way of wording it. Praying for you, pastor. Next week's going to be better. You're like, thanks. A lady came up to me a few weeks ago. And she walked up to me. I don't know if she's here or not. She walked up to me and she looked at me and she said, your preaching has gotten so much better. As God is my witness. I stood there and I went, thank you. I think. I got up to preach to these 85-year-olds. While, was it 80 of them? Did I say five 80-year-olds? 85, no, not 85-year-olds. 80, space, five-year-olds. All those that are 85 here said, hey. I'm in the middle of preaching. I'm pouring out my heart. I'm thinking, man, I've got a word. You know, like I'm a preacher, I've got a word. They don't care. They want lunch. They want some candy and a funny story and lunch. I started off, no kidding. I got up there and I said, how many of you know what my name is? And they all put up their hands and I said, what about you? Do you know? He looks at me and said, yes, you're Pastor Jensen. I said, exactly. Now I'm preaching you about fasting. Get ready. Take a praise break. I didn't. I'm preaching. A kid gets up, gets up while I'm preaching. I'm in the middle of preaching. Gets up and just walks to the front. It just reaches out and says, excuse me. What do you do in that? Like, I, 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 it's God is my witness. I looked at Pastor Gretchen and I said, what do I do? Do I talk to him? <laughs> like he's got a question. Humbled. How many know that just when we feel like we know what we're doing, just when we feel like we're in control, just when we feel like we've got it all figured out, God has a way of quickly humbling us. Humility. I believe humility is one of the most underrated things in the kingdom of God. Pride is the opposite to humility. Pride is your greatest enemy, but humility is your greatest friend. Augustine said this, pride is the mother of all sin. Pride is pregnant with all other sin. If you know the Bible, the Bible says in Isaiah, it speaks about the sin of pride that we saw in in. Um, the, the, in Satan, when Satan was an angel and fell from heaven. 
It was the sin of pride that caused Satan to fall from heaven. Because Satan was an angel and he said, I want to be like God. I want to be bigger than God. And it was because of pride that caused him to fall from heaven. In James 4, 6, it says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's a sobering verse to look at that if there's pride in our heart, as much as we may be wanting to draw near to God and pray and and go about drawing closer to God, God is resisting us if there's pride. He resists the proud. Pride comes, uh, pride compares others to self. Humility compares ourself to Jesus. Pride is jealous and envious of others' success. Humility celebrates when others do well. Pride says it's everyone else, pride says it's everyone else's fault. Humility is quick to apologize. Pride is selfish. Says it's about me and my needs. Humility is selfless. It's about Jesus and others. Pride is about my glory, who I am, what I do, what I've achieved. Humility is about what Jesus has done for us. Pride says, I'm in control, I'm Lord of my life. Humility says, Jesus is my Lord. Pride is independent, relies on self. Humility is completely dependent on Jesus. Pride will sit in a service and say, I know this, I've heard this message before. Humility says, I love this topic. I can't wait to hear it again. I need more in my life. Pride will come to church and say, what is church going to do for me this Sunday? What is the pastor going to preach for me? Pride will come to church saying, What are the musicians? What songs are they going to do for us? But humility will come to church saying, what am I bringing to the house of God? Pride will look at the musicians and say, I don't like that song. I don't like how they did that. But humility will understand that when they come into church, it's not about what you take, but it's about what worship you're giving up to your Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Pride wakes at the start of the day and says, I know what I'm doing. I'm capable. I've got this. Humility wakes early and gets with the Lord and says, God, will you equip me? Will you empower me today? Will you strengthen me today? Without you, I'm nothing. I can't lead my family without you. I can't be a good wife, a good husband, a good mother, a good father, a good son or daughter. I need your help today. Pride always sees other, others' flaws. Humility sees its own issues first. I saw this. I thought this was a great description of humility. It says, humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is for me to have no trouble, never to be fretted, uh, fretted or vexed or irritated or sore or disappointment. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when no one praises me and when I am blamed or despised. 
It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and be at peace as He in a deep sea of calmness when all around is trouble. It's the fruit of the Lord Jesus Christ's redemptive work on Calvary's cross manifest in those of who, his own, of, of who are His own who, have subject to the, who are subject to the Holy Spirit. It was pride that changed angels into devils. It's humility that makes men as angels. What we've done is I think we can get so confused in the church about what true humility is. We understand humility as being a virtue that we all need to have and we all want to have. But we miss the fact that in order to walk in humility, humility requires brokenness. And in order to be broken, we have to let go of pride. And what happens is as, a ch- as, as people, sometimes I think we can, we can so easily walk in false humility. False humility is pride in disguise. Let me tell you something. It, true humility doesn't need your help to be shown. I had a man say to me once, no joke. He said to me, I'm the most humble person I know. <laughs> I gave him a minute and looked at him, hoping that he was gonna, it was going to register what he had just said. If you have to tell people you're humble, guess what? You're not. If you have to show people and demonstrate your humility, your willingness to serve, guess what? Your service is not being done in humility. It's being done in pride. You can serve motivated by pride. I got this pastor. I'll get this for you. It's okay. I don't mind serving. Gee, I'm working hard today. Love the church. It's all good, pastor. I got it. I'll do it all. Pride motivated service. Let me tell you something. You will get very tired when you're motivated by pride because you're constantly trying to puff, puff ourselves up if we have pride. And I say we because I'm preaching to myself. It's in our society. It's not just in our society. It's in our churches. We, we, we want to be elevated before people. We want to be magnified. We think success is when everyone knows our name. Pride is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. What I'm talking about, sorry, humility is not thinking. I just feel like some of you are like, um, what? <laughs> but see, you were nice about it. You didn't tell me. And I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not looking down at yourself. Humility is not pulling yourself down. What it is, is humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility is focused on others before you focus on yourself. But what can happen is we, we, we've learned in society, we think success is, as I said, when everyone knows our name, we think success is when we're, when we're lifted up, then that's when we've made it. But I wanna tell you, church, if you lift yourself up, it's done in pride. When God lifts you up, it's done in humility. It's learning 
what it is to be truly humble. Look at the order in Second Chronicles 7.14. Look at the order of what he's telling us to do. He says, first, humble yourself. And that hit me because he said, humble yourself before you pray. Don't pray if you haven't been humbled. Because a humble person will always be a praying person. It's possible to pray pride-fueled prayers. The Pharisees did it really well. There are people in many churches that can get up and pray and they know the words and they know how to pray it and they know how to say it and they say it so eloquently and it's put together so nicely, but it's purely motivated by pride. And I'm telling you, we've got to be so careful in the church of how, how we operate and what's motivating what we're doing. I'm challenged as I'm even preparing, as I prepare this message, challenge in my own heart. Am I doing what I'm doing so that people will glorify us and say, oh man, you're doing awesome. Wasn't that a great message? Or that was a great prayer meeting. Or oh, that's great. And hear what I'm saying. I'm not talking down encouragement. We need that. We need encouragement. But we cannot live for the encouragement and the affirmation of others. Reinhard Bonnke, who's probably arguably one of the greatest evangelists that's ever lived. A man that has seen in person over one million recorded, recorded decisions for Jesus Christ in one service. Stop and think about that for a moment. You know it's a big altar call when they have buses that bring people that raise their hand from the back to the front. And he would go into, he goes into Africa, still does, and does these crusades out in Africa in the middle of nowhere with four, five million people. And people came up against him and the government came against him and there were death threats and there were terrorism threats saying, if you come into this country, we're going to kill you. We hate you. And they would ridicule him and criticise him. And I remember hearing someone ask him about it and say to him, are you not worried about that? And he said, I'm immune immune to the criticisms of people because I learnt years ago to be immune to their praises which is him saying, it doesn't matter whether people say they like me or they don't like me. I'm not doing this for them. I'm doing this for my King and my Saviour. So if you come up against me, it doesn't matter. If you praise me, that's great, but it doesn't matter because I don't do it for you. And God is saying to us, before you pray, you need to humble yourself. Because what we need to understand is when we humble ourselves, it brings us to a place of prayer. Because prayer is saying, God, I can't do this on my own. Prayer is saying, God, I need you. When you make that decision to wake up earlier in the morning and get with God, just saying, God, I know I've got gifting and I know I've got ability and I know I've been doing this job for a long time or I'm in this course and I know what, but, but really in reality, I can't, I don't want to step outside this door today if you're not with me. Humility is getting in the presence of God saying, Lord, I need you today. That's why he has that order. Humility 
will lead you to a place of prayer. But the next thing he says is if you humble yourselves and pray, and I love this, he says, and seek my face. I know we talk a lot about prayer. I know we understand it as a fundamental key to our Christian walk. How often when you pray, do you see his face? That hit my heart when I was preparing and God I felt like God speak that to me. That when we get in our prayer place, do we come to God in that place of prayer with a list of things we want Him to do? And it's possible for us to come to God in prayer with a list of things, go through the list and leave without seeing His face. When we talk about seeing the face of God, it's talking about a level of intimacy, face to face, close, close with Him. That's what prayer time needs to be. That's why perhaps some of you find it difficult. I remember going for a season in my life where I found it so difficult to pray. The moment I see His face, the moment I'm in my prayer place, the moment I see the face of God, it empowers me to pray. When we get in the presence of God, when we get in that prayer place, you've got to be someone that sees the face of God. Your life would radically, radically turned around if you made a decision before I leave every day. I'm not just going to pray. I'm going to make sure I walk out having seen Jesus' face today. When you open your Word, do you see His face? Do you get a glimpse when I'm talking about His face, I'm talking about understanding, not, 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 not about Him, but understanding who He is. Do you get that, that, that moment where it's like, that's Jesus. That's the touch of God. That's His presence. That's the anointing. That's what we need. Because we cannot represent something to a lost and dying world that we have not encountered first ourselves. And one of the challenges is we have Christians that we're beginning more and more to understand what we're called to do and what we're called to represent to a lost and dying world. But we haven't carried, we're not carrying what we're called to represent. We're called to represent Jesus and you cannot represent something you have not encountered daily. He says, humble yourself, then pray. And he says, seek my face. Isn't it crazy that he says all of these things before he says anything about turning from our wicked ways? We would think that you've got to turn, you've got to get rid of the junk in your life. You've got to get things. We say often in our church, you've got to get your life right before you can come to God and pray. You don't get your life right before you come to God. You come to God and He gets your life right. See how important it is because it's in that place of seeing His face that motivates me to get my life right. Because before I see His face, I don't have a benchmark to live by. And I can look at my own life and think, you know what, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm not, I'm not messing around crazy. I'm not living like that. I'm not living like that. And we get prideful. Man, I'm good. I know the songs in church. I read my Bible all day today and I know what's going on. And they gave me a seat right at the front today, Sunday. Man, I'm, I'm, man, I'm, I'm up there. I'm doing. Then you get in his face. The Bible says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. That means that what we try and do on our own, it's like filthy, dirty compared to Jesus. 
The moment I start feeling myself get puffed up and prideful, the moment I encounter the face of Jesus, the moment I encounter His presence or sense His touch, it, I cannot help but it brings you to that place of brokenness because when you get that fresh revelation of Jesus, you walk away saying, man, there's stuff in my life. There's wicked ways I've got to turn from. You see the order, humility leads us to prayer. Prayer positions us to see His face. And in the presence of His face, we turn from our wicked ways. Our society, we are, it's so inbred in us to look for the affirmation of people so often. I find myself doing it all the time. We post, we'll post a picture on Instagram and what are we doing? We're looking, how many likes did I get? And they're not just that, who's liking it? Oh, they liked it, that must be good. We send out a tweet, oh man, I've got to retweet you. <laughs> Feeling good about me? We post something on, on Facebook and we're looking, seeing how many people liked it. What we're really doing is we're reaching out saying, do you like me? Will you affirm me? Will you affirm me? If you live to please man, you will never truly please God. Because what you're doing is when you... When you live to please man, you're dependent on man. But when we live to please God, we're dependent on Him. Humility is not about what you have or don't have. People think humility means to be humble, means you've got to drive a bad car and live in a crummy house. That's not humility. Humility is not about what you do or don't have. It's about who you depend on. You can drive a beautiful car and every time you get in that car, you acknowledge Jesus and say, Lord, without you, I would have nothing. It's all, it's all about focus. We know the story. We know that the person in the Bible, Saul, Saul is, doesn't have a great reputation. If you, if you sort of heard the different stories, he's known as the, as the king in the Bible that was rejected as king. Saul had some, some mess ups. Saul had some, some issues. In 1 Samuel though, it shows us in early years of Saul when Saul was first chosen to be the king. In 1 Samuel 10, 21, it says, when they had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matra was chosen and Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore, they inquired of the Lord further, has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, there he is, hidden among the equipment. Saul had been chosen to be king, but he didn't want it. He was, he was holding back. He, he, Saul actually, at the very start, Saul was someone that walked in humility. If you look, it tells us further down, further down in the verse, I think it's verse 26 or 25, it says that where Saul came from, because it says he, go, he went back home after they anointed him king, he went back home to a place called Gibeah. And the place called Gibeah, if you look at the translation of that mean, what that means, it's a town in a mountain place, but the town, the interpretation, it's a Hebrew word and it actually means a low place. 
Saul was someone who actually saw himself as, as low. He was someone that, that, that demonstrated a heart of humility. When Samuel first went to him, I don't have the verse here, but earlier on in the story, when the prophet Samuel first went to Saul and says, you're going to be anointed to be king over Israel. Saul said to Samuel, me, he says, I'm of the tribe of Beth. I'm a nobody. I'm not. He demonstrated humility. But then what happened? Little bit by little bit, Saul began to fall in love with the affirmation and the praise of people. It says that when Saul came out, it says he stood head and shoulders above everyone else. He's a good looking dude. And it says that everyone looked at him and said, man, you're the man. You're awesome. And it began to get him and he began to puff himself up. In fact, if you look at the story and you can go through the different things that Saul did. He constantly, but he started to take matters into his own hands. There's a story before they went up in battle against the Amalekites. Saul was told and given instructions before they went to battle to wait for seven days for Samuel to come. Samuel as the prophet was meant to come and Samuel was going to offer up an offering to God of sacrifice before they went to battle. And the prophet delayed because God told him to delay because he wanted to test Saul's heart. But when the prophet didn't show, Saul said, you know what? I'm good enough. Let me do this. Pride said kicked in. And Saul stepped out of his office as king and tried to step into the office as prophet and said, you know what? I'll do the sacrifice. Don't worry about it. And little bit by little bit, you can read throughout the story. He was given instructions on what to, what to take when they went into the, the, the when they went into defeat the Amalekites. He was given instructions on, on what they were to take and what they were not to take. And Saul was disobedient. And all the way through his life, little bit by little bit, he started as a man in a low, humble state. But if you look at the story of Saul, you'll know Saul ends up committing suicide on a battlefield. He falls on his own sword. But actually the place that where Saul fell on his sword is a place called Gilboa, G-I-L-B-O-A, a Hebrew word. The interpretation for Gilboa is swollen, puffed up. Saul was born in a low place of humility, but died in a puffed up, swollen place of pride. Because he fell in love with the affirmation of people. And I'm telling you, church, in order for us to see our land healed and see a revival come and see God move radically, like what we pray about, like what we sing about, the first thing we've got to learn how to do as the church is what it is to truly humble ourselves. I saw this quote from evangelist, Gypsy Smith said this. She was once asked, was once asked how to start a revival. He answered, go home, lock yourself in a room, kneel down in the middle of the floor, draw a chalk mark all around you on the floor and ask God to start the revival inside the chalk mark. When he's answered your prayer, the revival will begin. God says we're so focused in this verse on the land being healed 
But the first thing God addresses is not the land being healed, but the state of the heart of his people first. God wants to do a supernatural work in this incredible land. But I believe the work that he wants to do most before any of that is a new fresh work in his church. One of the things that I think is so detrimental to us as Christians and what we live and what we aspire to do and the difference we aspire to make is the fact that when the world looks at us, I don't think they always see Jesus represented. I heard this awesome quote from Gandhi and he said this, he said, I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians. What do we do when craziness is going on around us? We present Jesus. Presenting Jesus will go against our natural vein as people. We want to present us. I caught myself this week. Well, I didn't catch myself. My wife caught me. On, on Instagram, I was blowing up on someone for something stupid that they posted in regard to things this week. Start lashing out and calling people out. And, and Chris, I said, just leave it, delete, just forget it. Don't, don't play into that trap. We've got to represent Jesus. I wrote down the definition of, for myself. And when I'm preaching, it's, it's humbling to preach on humility. <laughs> I'm preparing this message. And, and as I'm preparing, I'm praying. Saying, Lord, get rid of my pride and the pride that's in my heart that seeks affirmation from people before I want affirmation from you. As a communicator, it's, it's, it's tough because we can get so caught up as we're preparing messages. Are people going to like it? Is it going to be what people want to hear? And hear me, you know, I want you to like a sermon or a message. But God is taking, and when I say me, I'm, God's taking me on a journey where it's, you know what? I've got to preach what God gives me, not what people want. Especially in this day and age. Because now what we're doing is we're starting as churches, we are, we're changing what we believe to fit into popular opinion. Jesus never fit into any popular opinion. He never fit a mould. In fact, He was so anti-popular opinion that they killed Him for it. But God spoke to me. As I was preparing and I wrote this down, what is true humility to me? What does it mean to me? True humility, I think, is when people look at us but see Jesus. Humility is not beating yourself up because if you're beating yourself up, the focus is you. Humility is not beating yourself up. It's lifting Him up. I saw this story and I'm going to close real quick. 
In the summer of 1986, two ships collided in the Black Sea off the coast of Russia. Hundreds of passengers died as they were hurled into the icy waters. News of the disaster was further darkened when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It wasn't a technology problem like a radar malfunction or even thick fog. The cause was human stubbornness. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence nearby. Both could have steer cleared, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give away to the other. Each was too proud to yield first. By the time they came to their senses, it was too late. How many people their marriage ended in divorce? or separation because there were two ships going head to head and neither wanted to yield. How is disunity formed is when people say, I'm not moving, I'm not yielding. Humility keeps us from speaking too soon. James 1.19, he says, let every man be swift to hear slow to speak. Humility allows us to ask for help from others. If ever that's something that we need to have in the church, one of the most powerful things you can do is your Christian walk is say, dude, can you help me? I'm screwing up. Some of my, my most powerful turnaround moments in my Christian walk was where I managed to stir up the boldness to go to someone and say, dude, I'm messing up. I'm messing up. Pride will stop you from asking others for help. Humility helps us to be mindful of our weaknesses. Romans eleven eighteen 18, it says, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. It keeps us always willing to serve others. That's what we need as a church. We need people that say, I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to serve other people. If you're too small to serve, if you're too big to serve, then you're too small to lead. Humility always wants to give others credit. Man, isn't that something that we need more and more in our society? James 4.10, he says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. In Matthew 11.29, before we, before we close, I know I've said that twice, but it's just what we do in church. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, he says, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart. Look at this, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Humility brings rest to your soul. When you pick up Jesus and you put Jesus on you, that's what he says, take my yoke upon you because I am gentle and humble. Pride will tire you out. Humility gives you rest because you can throw off all of the expectation 
all of worrying what people think, all of trying to build yourself up or trying to get yours or trying to make it to the top. And you say, you know what? Yes, I want to be the best at everything I do. And the Bible says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your heart. But it's God that lifts up and positions people. And if we are humbled in heart, He will lift us up. Think highly of others before ourselves. In order to bring about change and healing in our land, the first thing we've got to do as a church is learn what it is to be humble before God and say, Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you in a greater measure in our lives. We need you to do a new work, regardless of how long you've been in church, how many sermons you've heard, how many worship songs you've sung. You need God to do a new work in your life. And it takes a humble heart to get with God and say, Lord, do it again in my life. Move in my heart. Right across this place, can we all stand to our feet today? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are blessed.